and for standing in honoring a long-standing tradition, no pun intended, a long-standing tradition of reading the Word of God audibly and standing for it. And so now that you're seated, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And I've actually given a little title to today's message called Paul's Concern. And as we see this unfold in this passage of Scripture, you can see the heart of the apostolic father as he is concerned for this church at Thessalonica that he was a part of the original founding of. And he's writing a letter back to them, having not seen them since he was abruptly taken from them. And if you would like to kind of put this picture together, you can go to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. And verses 1 through 10 tells the story of Paul on his missionary journey coming to Thessalonica, going to the synagogue originally as was the, you know, his pattern, being a Jew and in that that Roman world, there were so many synagogues spread throughout, you know, the Roman Empire that he would often, most often, start his ministry of evangelization to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Often, it would also include Gentiles because many times there were a lot of Gentiles in the synagogue. And he met with, he met some immediate success. The Bible says there were devout women, honorable women, and Greeks, a great number of them, that heard and they believed. But, but the Jews, the Jews uh, uh, that were in the synagogue rejected the doctrine the same way that the Jews rejected the doctrine uh, that Christ taught and preached in Jerusalem. And it created such a contention that Paul was forced to, to leave abruptly. That's the passage of Scripture where he that left and went to Berea. And the passage in Acts says that the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica for they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, you have to think about this. It doesn't necessarily give us the length of time that Paul was there. But in that short period of time, surely his heart bonded with that group of men and women that did respond to his message, right? And he, he possessed deep, found affection for them as an apostolic father because his passion, Paul's passion is to present whoever responds to the call of Christ. His passion would be to present that person as a chaste virgin unto the Lord. That's metaphorically, but that we would endure the trials and the tribulations of life and that when Christ comes, we would be found innocent before him, ready to be received of our groomsmen and we would be the bridesmaid. Come on, or we would be the bride. That was Paul's motive and his desire. But think about this for a moment. When Paul was taken out of the city quickly, he has no means to communicate with them any farther. There's no means of modern communication. He can't, you know, there, there's no phone call, no telegraph system, no means or capacity to check on this group of men and women. And so he continues his ministry, but in the back of his mind, in the back of his mind, he's thinking about, I wonder about what, what happened. Wonder what's going on. That's kind of the heart. That's where we pick up. He kind of addresses this in the letter that he's now writing and he's sending back to them, uh, I guess, I believe, via Timothy. So let's go this in this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 2. And I'm going to back it up to the 11th verse. And we're just going to kind of dialogue with it and work our way down and arrive at where we're going to go today. As you know how, so Paul's reflecting back of how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. I'll tell you what, I'm thankful for men of God and women of God that look upon us as a family 
and care enough to speak to us even from a parental state or in the parental context of seeing our lives shaped for the glory of God. He said, look at how we, we behaved ourselves. We charged you. We encouraged you. He said, and when we did, we, we encouraged you that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and his glory. In essence, Paul is saying, man, we want you to walk in a way that brings honor to God. Think about you as a parent. Don't you want your children? Come on, to walk worthy of all that you've invested in them, right? And so this is the heart of the apostle here. And he says, so for this cause, and this has been our verse that we've been looking at on on Sunday nights. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively or effectually worketh also in you that believe. That word effectually, uh, again, in the, in the base root in Greek is to energize. It will energize your life. It will produce a change from the inside out. But I noted on Sunday night for just a moment, I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. When Paul was there in the synagogue initially, they would have had the, a copy of the, the law of Moses. They would have had the prophets and the Psalms. But the doctrine that Paul was preaching would be that Christ had fulfilled the prophecies that were contained therein. But Paul could not reference the book of Matthew. There wasn't a book of Matthew. He couldn't say, listen, turn with me to the gospel of St. Luke. He couldn't do that. So he's commending them for he's saying, you received our message as the word of God. That it's not the word of men, but it is the word of God. And so he's commending them. So are y'all catching hold of this? And he's saying that as, as as you have received it, it's going to effectively or effectually work in you that believe. If you believe this word, I'm telling you, the word of God will not return to you void. I mean, it is impossible for that word. If you believe it, it's going to work on the inside of you. It has to. It's a living entity. It is the revealed will of God. And when you get it in your heart, it's going to work in your heart and life. 14th verse. He said, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. And look, Paul is aware that they had suffered many things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And here he's referencing the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they pleased not God, and they're contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. He said, but we, brethren, now he refers back to himself and his apostolic team. We were taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. Paul's saying, we may have not been with you. We had to go to Berea. We were taken out of the city almost by night. But he said, but, but I'll tell you what, we left a part of our heart with you right there in Thessalonica. And he said, and since that time, we've endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And I can only suppose those that are involved with itinerating ministries and to which I'm not, my passion is held to a local congregation, but I would only suppose that those that are involved in itinerating ministries, when they're taken from one church and they they really, you know, in a short period of time, establish some very healthy relationships and see the sincerity of people's faith, I'm telling you, I'm sure that when they leave and they're somewhere around the world, that group of people still on their heart. 
And Paul is saying, you've been on my heart even though I've not been with you and I've been looking forward to have an opportunity to come and to see you face to face. And he said this, look at this 18th verse. He said, and I would have come unto you, even me, uh, Paul, I wouldn't have just sent, uh, you know, my associate. And, but even though he's a powerful minister, Paul's saying, I would have came myself, but Satan has hindered us. Satan fights against apostolic ministry, edifying the local body. Paul said that stumbling blocks and roadblocks and resistance of our adversary has hindered me from coming. He said, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? He said, is it not you in the presence of our Lord at his coming? Once again, he wanted to present them. I'm borrowing from another epistle where he did say those exact words. I long to present you unto the Lord. And he said that you would be holy at, at Christ's coming for you are our glory and our joy. Again, like a father, I texted all my kids and now my extended family, uh, my children's spouses, to tell them this morning how much I love them, how much I, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that they're olive plants. I quoted from Psalm 128, verse 3, they're olive plants round about my table. And that was the heart of this apostolic father. You are our glory. You are our joy. We love you, he's saying, even though I hadn't seen you since I left you. And Paul here, look at what happens this, and the, but Paul's concerned because a lot can happen when people come under persecution, right? When things start, you better, you might want to just sit up and take note a little bit more. We don't know what's happening around us, right? There, there's persecution rising against the, the, the Christian church in the Western world, the likes of which we haven't seen in some time. So we, we might ought to, to take heed today. Paul said, I want to know, and look at this. He said, I could no longer forbear. Forbear what? To know the state of the condition of their faith because Paul was aware of their persecutions, that they had been persecuted by their own countrymen and the Jews. And I'm telling you, when you see your friend get drugged off to, pr to prison, not because they broke the law, but because they believed in Christ. Or when you lost your job, not because you weren't a good employee, but because you had faith and you trusted God. And, and so Paul is aware of the potential that could take place. He himself suffered many things of his own countrymen, and he knew how malicious they could be. He was previously one himself, a persecutor of the church. And he knows that it's one thing to be able to stand up and worship God when everything's good and God's blessing you. It's another thing when they took your kid to jail right, to punish you. So Paul here is saying, I couldn't stand it any longer. He said, I, I had to find out, are you still in the faith? That's what he asked the Corinthians later. He said, examine yourself, are you in the faith? And he said, so he said, the only way for me to discover this is Timothy's volunteered. And he said, I've sent Timothy, our brother and our minister of God, and he's a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. So it's clear that Timothy's purpose is twofold. Number one, he's there to discover. Like the, the spies of old in the book of Numbers that went out and spied out the land, Timothy's coming to, to find out, is there even a residue of what we labored so fervently and, and so faithfully in the midst of great opposition? Is there even a residue of faith? So number one, he's there to discover their faith. And so, um, and, and so that's a trip that when they sent Timothy, they're like, okay, Timothy could be gone for several weeks or he could be back in three days. 
Because if he gets there and there's no remnant of even a church left, then our labor's in vain. And I'm telling you, that frustrated the Apostle Paul. When he used that term vain, which we'll read in a moment of time, uh, that we'll see, uh, I think it's in, it's in the fifth verse that, that he uses the word vain. Uh, Paul, Paul is concerned that they labored so uh, feverishly in the midst of opposition and saw what they thought was initial fruit only to have several weeks or months or pa- pa- pass and then them not even believe any longer because of persecution. So he's, it's a spy out mission first. Timothy's going to find out their faith. But if he finds a remnant, now this, I love this passage right here. If he finds a group of men and women still serving God, and I just want to go ahead and tell you, he did find a group of men and women still serving God. A group of men and women that he commended for their faith. If we were to take the time to read on down in the third chapter, which we'll read in a little bit in a moment. But I love this here in the second verse because here's he said, let me tell you about Timothy. He said, Timothy is our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. And he said, and if he comes to you and if you're still believing, you know what he's going to do? He's going to help establish you and he's going to help comfort you concerning your faith. And when I read that, it just made me, again, so deeply appreciative of the men and women that have committed their lives to the cause of Christ, that have committed their lives for the ministry, that God so loved you enough that men and women will risk, they will hazard their own lives, they will put themselves, even pastors, we will live in glass bubbles, we will put our families at risk, why? So that we can encourage you and build you up and pray for you when you're down and hope that you're trusting God and minister to you, God loved you so much. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? God loved you so much to give you a coach in life, to give you an encourager, to give somebody that you know that you can call upon called a shepherd. Somebody, that's a great gift. That's why God calls the ministers, men and women all over this world who labor for the cause of Christ. The Bible says that they're worthy of double honor. And they are, and I'm thankful for them. And Paul said, look at Timothy. He will minister to you. And he said, we also did not want you to be moved by our afflictions because they were at a difficult time themselves, even perhaps even imprisonment. For yourselves know that we were appointed. And he said, and when we were with you, fourth verse, we told you beforehand that we would, uh, that we would suffer tribulation. Paul told them, he said, if, if you know, you're following our lives, it, you're gonna su- we're going to suffer tribulation, so you got to get ready. Don't let it rock your boat so much that you want to, uh, you know, abandon your faith. We are prepared for this, is what Paul's saying. We've already sold our, we've already died to this world. And we know that wherever we preach the gospel, we're going to be met by opposition and we're going to be persecuted. But I tell you what, Paul said, I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. Come on, somebody. Amen. He said, I may be bound riding from a prison jail cell, but he said, but the word of God is not bound. So he had sold himself out to the gospel of Christ. And look at this fifth verse. He says, for this is his heart's motive right here. And this is what sets the course for the message today. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, when I could, you know, remember, no FaceTime, no means of communication, no telegraph system in any capacity. And it was unsafe to even send somebody in. And it was probably putting Timothy at risk to go back and try to find out because they had left the city so violently. And so he said, he said, but I couldn't stand it any longer. Timothy volunteered. We sent him because I had to know your faith, lest by some means 
Catch these words. It's on the screen. It's on your, in the pages of your Bible. He said, let's go down to the fifth verse. Let's, if we can, get to the fifth verse. He said that we would know your faith, lest by some means the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain. Let me read that to you again real quickly. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I sent to know the present condition of your faith. I expanded. Uh, the present condition of your faith, lest by some means that the enemy... Your adversary, the devil, has tempted you, and our labor is in vain. Again, Paul's fear or concern for those who have received their message as the word of God, but had experienced persecution, times of trial and testing, possibly have fallen away and were no longer walking in the faith. They were no longer walking in truth, sincerity, and holiness. That was his fear. Now, thankfully, he discovered, based upon Timothy's testimony, that they continued to believe. And it released great joy in his heart. And thus, he writes this epistle. But the potential was, the potential was that the enemy had tempted them. The enemy had tempted them through their persecution the adversary, let me, I'm going to talk to you in just a few moments about your adversary, the devil. But we know this, the apostle Paul knew the work of the tempter. He said this by his own pen in 2 Corinthians. He said, he said, lest Satan take advantage of us because we are not ignorant of his devices. Let me tell you, the reality is many in the American church have become ignorant of Satan's devices. We are uneven, aware, unaware of how the devil, the means and the method and the ways that he attempts to tempt us, to lure us to sin until we either fall away or drift away. Either way, you arrive at the place where a, once, a, per, or a person who was once passionate about faith in Christ has become cold and dormant, where there used to be fire in the furnace no longer, and now there's only ashes and coals, a leftover residue of what you used to be, the byproduct of a tempter who came to you when you were persecuted, down and out, difficult times, difficult moments, and he seduced you. You got frustrated, aggravated, and instead of drawing close to God in your advice, Adversity, you drifted away from God. Let me tell you and give you just a little mystery right now. Draw near to God. If you draw near to God, I don't care what season of life you're in, He will draw near to you. He will. If you come running to Him, it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. If your heart is pure before the Lord in repentance, I'm telling you, He will receive you and He will in no wise turn you away. Come on, someone. Amen. So I thought to myself for a few moments, and borrowing from the words of Dean Caldwell, can we detour here for just a moment? Can we expose the enemy for a few moments today? I don't preach a lot about the devil. I don't get great zeal or excitement because I'd much rather talk about Jesus. I just had. But I want to expose the adversary through the Word of God in just a moment. Let me also catch you up in this context. You say, well, Pastor, I believe in the Scriptures, but I don't believe in a demonic world. Well, then you don't believe the Scriptures, right? Because if you believe the Scriptures, then the Scriptures are what has opened our eyes to the existence of another world outside of the tangible, physical, corruptible world that we, in which we live in today. The scriptures teach us that there are, there is, first of all, a spirit world. It teaches us that there are evil spirits. King James Bible calls them devils. Not just devil, but devils. 
Uh, other translations often call them demons. But John 10, Jesus said they come to steal, kill, and to destroy. Right? J Peter said that your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, we know who they are. They followed those angels, those devils. They followed Satan in a rebellion years, uh, I mean, unknown time, whether time was a part of it or not, I cannot say, a rebellion against God. But they were cast out of heaven. And they're bound under the darkness of the chains of this world, the darkness of the chains of this world, until the day of, con of consummation, when God's going to consummate all things in Christ. And, and, and until then, they seek to usurp God's throne, not in heaven, they were cast out of heaven, but to seek to usurp God's throne upon your heart. Because what they do is they look for access points, even in the lives of believers, to gain a stronghold in your life a place that used to be possessed by the kingdom of God, they can put their flag down and stake it for the kingdom of darkness. So it's an ongoing battle. It's an, oftentimes they're looking for an opportunity, uh, even in the life of a believer, and this is where they often find that opportunity. They often find it in the life of a believer when you're going through extreme persecution, when you're going through difficult days, when your spouse left you without any reason. When the company let you go. When the children that you raised in church. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Now have gone another way in just contention and strife. It's, I'm telling you, the devil has no pity. They have, he has no mercy. He doesn't say, well, she's down and out. Leave her alone. No, he will kick you when you're down. His objective is to steal, kill, and to destroy. So he will come to you at your weakest moment when you've suffered loss, when you've gone through sorrow or travail or frustration. And what he will do is he will tempt you to give place to him that you might respond in anger. Come on, the works of the flesh, resentment or bitterness. The enemy comes in to gain the stronghold of unbelief in your life until you then even begin to doubt the validity of your faith and your faith in God. And the enemy, or excuse me, the believer often gives place to foolish imaginations in this process. Thoughts penetrate into your mind. You question, you question whether or not really God is who he says he was. You, you question the authenticity of the word of God. Where do those doubts arise? They arise in your heart and mind because an enemy has come in and sown a seed of doubt in your heart and mind, and it's begun to grow. He gained his access through your pain, but in the process, he's preparing to steal from you and rob from you and take from you the things that God has trusted in your life. And I'll tell you today, I don't want to give him place. I love Ephesians chapter number four. It says, neither give place to the devil. Now, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? That part of spiritual warfare, isn't that a part of being a believer in Christ? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world that's in spiritual places, and that's why we stand against them today. We give them no place in our lives. You have to learn, again, I say this, the tactics of your adversary so you can be as the Apostle Paul. We are not ignorant of his devices. Because if you choose to remain ignorant, you will eventually come under bondage. 
Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? At some level, at some place in your life, I'm not saying that you will fall away. I'm not, it's possible that you will fall away. But I'm not saying that you will, but you will give place to an adversary who will take from th- things from you that God entrusted into your life that would bring him glory and bring you good. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So let's go a little further. So, so pastor, help me for a few minutes today. I want to help you endure a time of testing. I want to help you learn about how to, uh, to endure. You say, well, pastor, what can you do? What can, I'll tell you what I can do. Let me tell you. Here, you say, pastor, how can I endure? What do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. You need to look to Jesus. <laughs> you got to look to Jesus. Man, if I was African-American and I had somebody on the keyboard, my God, I'd be singing right now in here. I'd be saying, mm, you got to look to Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. What he put inside of you, he didn't intend for the enemy to come and steal, kill, and to destroy. If he put it in you, he created it, and he wants to bring it to a finish. He, you started as clay in his hand, but you're going to end up as a beautiful vessel that's filled with the glory of God. You got to look to Jesus. Hallelujah. We look to him today. Let me read to you a couple other, three verses, and that's all we're going to read, and then I'm going to just kind of wind this thing in the right direction. I didn't say I was going to close, but I'm going to hedge you towards a finish. Hebrews chapter number 2, let's read the 18th verse. I just felt my preacher come on when, I guess, the Reverend Lee Roy Brown, the masked minister is out, and the Reverend Lee Otis has arrived. And in the 18th verse of the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says this, For in that he, being Christ himself, has suffered, he suffered just like we did did he was made like us he was flesh in this body he was flesh he could feel pain he could feel emotion he could feel loss he could feel sorrow he could get frustrated he could go through the ups and downs of life he suffered he was tempted the enemy came to him as well and now he is able Come on, the scripture says he is able. New King James. Uh, King James says secure. He's able to aid you, relieve you. He comes running to your aid. Why? Because he's been where you are. He sat where you sat. He's been in a like situation. And he's given us the example of how to overcome. Let me go a little further. Read two verses with me, two chapters over. The apostle here in Hebrews continues this thought. In this passage, he is referring to him in a contrast between the priestly high priest ministry of Judaism and the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And here the author says in the 15th verse, we do not have a high priest. Now, if you ended right there, it'd be a sad day. He said, but we don't have a high priest which can't be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. What's that mean? You don't have a priest that you can pray to and he's looking from heaven says, I do not understand. Aaron a moment ago made some profound statements. He said, I prayed for a woman. He said, and I prayed by faith because I could not understand the trial that she's been through. But let me tell you one that has. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Let me tell you one that the Bible, look at this, look at this. It says his, he can, so let's reverse that. He can be touched by the feeling of your infirmity. He's concerned for you. Why? Because he was in all points tempted like you are. In every trial, even at his darkest hour, even in his most difficult time, he was tempted just like you are, but yet without sin. See, it's not just, uh, listen, it's not unspiritual and it's not sinful to go through persecution. But when that persecution hardens your heart against God, then you've given place to the adversary. 
Jesus came to show us that you can be in a rough place and still be in a holy place. You can be in a difficult moment and still be in a safe place at the same time, walking in the Father's grace. And look what he said further. He said, so therefore, you can come boldly. The word boldly means confidently. You can come confidently before Christ, and you can petition him for what? Two things. You can petition him for mercy. Because by the time you get there, you probably already sinned against the Father. And we live in the generation we've taught grace and grace, but we haven't taught mercy. I need his mercy first. Because by the time I come in there, I probably have already said something I shouldn't have said, thought something I should have thought, or did something I should have did. And before I need the grace of God to help, I need his mercy. His mercy to pardon me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And then his grace to empower me. My, that, my God, that's good. We need his mercy to pardon us and his grace to empower us. And so when I think about Jesus today, I don't think about just him coming to rescue you and take you out of the situation. But that's what your carnal mind wants. No matter what difficulty we're in, we always want God to lift us out of it. But I want you to know that God that can and does occasionally lift people out is the God that will also keep them in the midst of the trial. And that's that Jesus that I'm talking about today. Jesus was the Son of Man, and he was also the Son of God. He had a divine nature from his Father, but he was still housed in flesh just like us. He had all the emotions, the frustrations, the desires that we have, yet he was without sin. He could get tired. He could get angry. He could be joyful. He could be sad. In all points of everyday life and living, he was tempted just like you are, yet without sin. And so when you call on him, Come on, you have a friend that can come to your aid. Now, let me tell you one thing. I'm going to show this as I close today. Let me share with you. Now, you say, as you point me to Jesus today, you, I don't just point you to Jesus to deliver you from the temptation because not everybody is immediately raptured out of their present circumstances. Man, that's good. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Now, I know that's what we want. I came up in the 70s and the television, and that was, it was cow gone. Now, all these younger folks, they're like, I don't have a clue what Pastor Ram just said. But everybody that's 40 and older knows what I'm talking about. Cow gone. Take me away. That's what we want when we're in persecution. But I'm telling you, the God that loves you will keep you right there. Because he will work in you in the midst of that persecution. And his will can still be accomplished in you when you're going through difficult times. Now, let me tell you this real quickly about Jesus. He will use the word. He used the word, the scriptures, when he was tempted. But he never, listen to this. This is going to help the contemporary church. It probably won't make it on TBN, but it ought to. He never bent the word of God to his will. Because that in and of itself is a temptation. He bent his will to the revealed word of God. So listen to this. You cannot compromise the word and endure temptation. Rather, you must conform your will to the word. Because when you conform your will to the word, the spirit of God will strengthen you to endure the temptation. Right? So let me take you for a moment as I prepare to close. Let me say this. Let me say this. Scripture records Jesus tempted in at least three different contexts. I'm not going to preach about it. I'm only highlight the end of this real quickly. He was tempted in his flesh in a garden called Gethsemane. 
at the end of his earthly ministry, the weight of the cross was about to be laid upon his shoulders. And the Bible doesn't mention that his adversary, the devil. His adversary, the devil, had entered into Judas of Iscariot to betray him over to the high priest. But it was under the full light of the Passover moon that he prayed in the garden. And he came out to his disciples and he said, please pray with me. He said, because I'm in heavy and extreme temptation and my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. We'll all have to face that type of temptation. We do, but I thank God he can help me because he made, he made it through his Gethsemane. And if he made it through his, I can make it through mine. Glory to God. Number two, also religious leaders were always trying to get him caught in his words. He called them hypocrites. Now, the world has flipped this. They'll call you a hypocrite because that's why they don't want to come in here because the church is full of hypocrites. But I'm going to flip it back. I think they're the hypocrites because they're the ones saying they love God, but they don't, uh, they don't do anything to connect to a people of faith. And that's hypocrisy. But they were always trying to catch Jesus in his words so that they could accuse him before the, the, the chief priest or before the Roman, uh, you know, elite or the, the, the officials so that they might accuse him. But Jesus would, I'll tell you what, he knew. He would, God would give him words. I'm telling you, but people try to catch you in your words. Don't they? They want to pull you out in the flesh until you become a different person and you go beyond temperance. Temperance is the work of the Holy Spirit and self-control. But the enemy through someone else will say something, especially in the context of your faith, all of a sudden you'll get fired up. And all of a sudden your temperance will be laid aside and you will act a fool. And then the enemy has a stronghold to accuse you with. Does that make sense? Jesus went through that as well, but how many you know he overcame? But the most famous of all, I'm closing with this, was Jesus's trial, Jesus's trial on what is called the Mount of Temptation. Y'all remember that? The Mount of Temptation, Jesus's trial immediately following his baptism in the Jordan River. The Bible says the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, why did that happen? Twofold, I believe in my heart. Number one, he did it because it would prove Jesus as he would face other temptations. He had to resist the adversary and, and he, had to, to, he would not allow. He said later, Satan cometh and has nothing in me, right? And so that's one side of it. Another side is so that he would show us because the Bible says he left us an example how to follow his steps. So don't give me this, well, the devil's tempting me, and I don't know if I can. No, yes, you can. Don't give me that, and he's got you beat up, back down in a corner. These thoughts, I'm telling you, if you know who you are in Christ, you know what Christ has done, and he's living his life through you. Yes, you can overcome. Why? Because Christ overcame, and greater is he that is in you. Oh, my God, the greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And so he was led of the Spirit in the wilderness. And he was also, and I should add a third one to this, I believe to show us that he overcame where Adam and Eve failed. Because he faced threefold temptation in the garden or, or, or on the mountain that was akin to the temptation in the garden. Let me just throw this out to you today. Just let me just toss it out. I'm, I'm into it this far. Might as well finish. Can't make this a two-part message, so I might as well finish. So let me finish here today. So in this context, for just a moment, John the Beloved wrote, not in his gospel, but his epistle. He said, there are three in the world, three things in the world. He said, it's the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you study that out, you will see that that revelation almost parallels the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve saw that that tree was good for food. It appealed to her flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was appealing to her eyes, and it would make her wise. And she succumbed to that temptation, and she sinned. And so Jesus on the mount, the enemy would come to him, and in a similar fashion, he would present three depths of temptation to Jesus, but Jesus would overcame, overcome where Adam and Eve failed. And the reason why I'm telling you about it today is because you think that when you say, Jesus, come to my rescue, he's going to come take you out of where you are and put you on another place. No, he'll come alongside you and strengthen you to endure the temptation so that when you walk down from the mountain, you walk down full of the Holy Ghost and power, and the devil will have no place in you, your family, or your children. Come on, somebody, because you'll be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Hallelujah. So let's go in just real quickly. The first thing that he did was after 40 days of fasting. I've not made it past maybe about three. But they tell me that after 40 days, hunger returns. See, hunger leaves about the fifth day, but it returns because if it doesn't return, you'll die. So it says afterward he was hungry, and that's when the enemy came. And what did the enemy present to him? He said, if thou art really the son of God. He's appealing to his flesh. If you're really the son of God, take these stones. There's rocks laying all around you. And make it bread. The temptation appealing to his flesh was to manipulate the word of God to the degree that he would appease his carnal appetite in a compromising manner. Now, I'm going to put this one out, and in doing so, I'm going to rob the heart out of another sermon. But I'm going to just tell you where we're at in our American culture today that I think is a major word that's going to have to be preached. One of the strongest natural appetites in man is sexuality. And we are the generation, even in the church, that we have heeded the voice of the tempter, and we have sought to appease a natural appetite in a compromising manner. The live-in generation. The fornicating generation. The porn- Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm just giving you one example. One example. People fall prey to it who were just weeks ago in the church worshiping God. And so-and-so pulled them aside. Let me tell you, they were ignorant of Satan's devices. But I'm going to point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Make a change. Make a change. Again, I'm robbing the heart of a sermon out that I won't go into. That's just one example. How many know there's multitude? multitude? I could just go on and on of things that appeal to your flesh that the enemy tempts you with. And secondly, secondly, the Bible says he took him up on an exceeding high mountain. And in a moment's time, he showed him all the kingdoms of this world. All the kingdoms. He showed him. He visually, before the days of video, he saw a vision of the glories of the kingdoms of this world and it appealed to his eye i'm telling you i've told you before you got to make a covenant with your eyes i'm telling you spiritual maturity often hinges on your ability to control what you look upon i didn't say what you see you can't avoid seeing sinful situations or sinful things or things that potentially lead you into sin but when you look upon it 
When you look upon it is when you begin to think about it. And it's when you begin to meditate it. Uh, meditate. David from the upper roof of, his, of his, uh, 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 you know, his penthouse apartment looked down and saw Bathsheba bathing. And he began to think about it. And what went from sight became stronghold. And before the night was over, it became sin. That's the process of it. We think about it. The enemy gets a stronghold because we look upon it. We look, are you all hearing what I'm saying? Look upon it. And we look upon it. So guard yourself. And lastly, the pride of life. The pride of life. Then he took him up on the pinnacle in the temple, looking out over the great Kidron Valley. And it was there that he said, if you are really the son of God, here's what the word says. The word says that he will give his angels charge concerning you and bear you up in your hands, lest you dash your feet against the stone. So if you're really the son of God, just cast yourself off and surely God's angels will come to you. But you know what Jesus did. Jesus said, the scripture also says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And I'll tell you, there's an arrogance in the church when we think that we can just enter into compromising situations, putting the things of, uh, of the Scripture at risk, and at the same time, we expect God to swoop in here like Superman and catch us before we fall. It's a pride and an arrogancy that we're going to have to repent of. It's the pride of life. Those are just three small examples, but the reason why I wanted to bring them to this pulpit today is because many in the church are giving place... To the tempter, and the, as the Apostle Paul said, I was so concerned lest the tempter has tempted you and your faith and our labor be in vain. You know what? It doesn't have to be that way. Does it have to be that way? I want to ask the worship team to come back. I got to close. I haven't even know Pastor Brown could go on with this subject matter, and it demands going on with. Can I say this to you today real quickly? I believe in my heart of hearts I believe that God has destined every believer, every believer in Christ to reflect him, to reflect his purposes, that you would walk worthy, that you would walk worthy of this high call that you have in Christ Jesus, and that Christ would shine his love through you. But all the while, the enemy is seeking a stronghold in your life because he wants to rob from you. He does. Does that make sense? And it's, he doesn't, again, not, he doesn't just come to you during the times when you are so spiritually prepared to face him. He comes to you when people have disappointed you, yeah. hurt you, cut you, said the wrong thing to you, suffered loss. The doctor's report came back negative, and you're down. And all of a sudden, thoughts begin to circulate in your mind, whispered there by the tempter. Does that make sense today? I believe in the presence of demonic spirits. Don't you, church family? I do. And I want to resist him. And I want to point you to Jesus. But I want you to go back with me. Let's put this whole puzzle together real quickly. Because I know it was very shallow that I went over those three temptations upon the mount. I could have built a whole sermon around it today. It's very shallow. you got to study that out for yourself. You do. That's how you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus because he came... He was tried, tempted just like you are, just like I am. And in doing so, he overcame and he set a precedence to show you that as you're in the world, as he was in the world, so are you. And if he overcame, so can you overcome. Are y'all catching hold of that, church fan? That's why he's your secure. That's why he's your helper. That's why he's the one that you call on. 
See, we've arrived at the place in our culture today when we'll call the prayer chain, we'll call a dear friend, we'll call all other things that we can think of rather than just coming to Christ and saying, God, I'm coming to you. I need you. I, you know, last two weeks, I preached my heart out about pretense, hypocrisy. Take the mask off. Don't try to hide things from God. You get thoughts in your mind that are unpure, unholy, and they're leading you to sin. You know what you need to do? You need to confess those to God in the prayer chamber. You need to just be honest and say, God, you know. You know what I've been thinking about. I mean, we got to get a control of our thoughts, church family, because the enemy's trying to get a stronghold in our mind. And you learn to pull it down, cast it down. You say, Pastor, well, half of my day feels like I'm casting and fighting. That's okay. Come on, keep on fighting. Keep on fighting. The enemy will eventually, he'll have to leave for a season. He will. That's what happened in Jesus' life. But I'll tell you, you can't just give in to those things. Because if you do, once he gets a stronghold inside you, rooted there, it's a lot harder to pull him up. So resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Would y'all stand up with me today?